Welcome home. You're listening to the 180 Church Podcast with Dr. Sammy and friends. Dr. Sammy D. Kim is a Harvard-trained ethicist and co-founder of 180 Church NYC. He is a Yale Hastings Scholar at the Yale Interdisciplinary Center for Bioethics and the Hastings Center, where he explores the inequities surrounding health, immigration, and social policies, along with professional burnout. He is also a regular contributor to Christianity Today. For more information, please visit his website at samdkim.com. Before we go into the message, we'll be practicing the rule of life. So let's first exhale all the things that preoccupies us in this moment, all the anxieties, everything that distracts. Let's lay it at the feet of Jesus and let us inhale the presence of God, the plans of God, the voice, the words, the truth, and the love of God. I'll be reading from Jesus Calling Devotional. When something in your life or thoughts make you anxious, come to me and talk about it. Bring me your prayer and petition, and with thanksgiving saying, thank you, Jesus, for this opportunity to trust you more. Though the lessons of trust that I send to you come wrapped in difficulties, the benefits far outweigh the cost. Well-developed trust will bring you many blessings, not the least of which is my peace. I have promised to keep you in perfect peace to the extent that you trust in me. The world has it backwards, teaching that the peace is a result of having enough money, possessions, insurance, and security systems. My peace, however, is such an all-encompassing gift that is independent of all circumstances. Though you lose everything else, if you gain my peace, you are rich indeed. Amen? Please be seated. So I realize that you're getting two back-to-back sermons about fasting, but I figure if not during Lent, then when? Um, So, all right. The practice of fasting has been a staple for Jews and Jesus followers since forever. But unfortunately, it's a practice that's no longer that characteristic of the church in America. In America, we hear about fasting more in the context of intermittent fasting for weight control or detoxing, um, more than we hear about fasting in relationship to repentance. But uh, most Christians throughout history have considered fasting to be important uh, to being a disciple of Jesus. And today, I hope that we can reclaim some of that history and understand what it is that we are missing out on. All right, so next slide. Cool. So we'll be referring back to this table over and over again. So uh, yeah, um, anyways. So why do people fast in the Bible? Um, What are the reasons for it? Uh, What's the meaning behind it? And unfortunately, there's no one passage in the Bible that defines what fasting is. So typically, when you read through the Bible, hoping for a clear, succinct explanation of a concept or a practice, we're usually out of luck. So the next best thing you can do is review every instance of a particular uh, of a particular word or a concept in the Bible, and we do some research about the context in which the word or concept is used, and then we make some big picture inferences or observations about um, 
about what that practice is, and then we recontextualize those observations or principles back to the here and now. So hopefully we can do a little bit of that today uh, in this sermon. And so fasting is one such word where we need to put in that effort um, to understand why people in the Bible fasted and why it's still a meaningful practice for us today. So starting from the topic, uh, sorry, starting from the top of the table, there are 30-something references uh, to fasting in the Bible, not that many. And they can largely be grouped into one of these three categories that I have up on the screen. So I refer to them as the Revelation Fast, the Repentant Fast, and the Lament Fast. And these categories represent different contexts or different conditions in which fasting took place. So we'll go through each of the categories from left to right, and we'll read some of the passages that'll guide us through what those meanings are. Um, but the goal is to make some big picture observations about when fasting takes place and why people fast. And hopefully, um, encouragement to do it today. So, the first category of fasting, next slide. Uh, I'm going to be reading uh, the passage on the screen. So, when all the people were being baptized, Luke 3, 21, um, Jesus was baptized too, and he was praying uh, as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Luke 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. So just to give a quick summary, in Luke 3, uh, during Jesus' baptism, Jesus was publicly recognized as the Son of God. Um, the love of the Father was communicated through a bird, <laughs> the Spirit. Um, the first thing um, Jesus does after this spiritual mountaintop, Holy of Holies moment, is he runs into the wilderness. Uh, into the desert. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and he ate nothing for 40 days. Uh, so there's a powerful experience, a life-defining moment, and Jesus goes away into solitude into the wilderness and doesn't eat. Why would someone do that? Well, uh, it's easy to say that, uh, well, that's what Jesus does, um, and call it a day, but Jesus was one of three people to engage in a 40-day fast after a defining moment. So we'll go into those. So next pass, uh, next slide. Yeah, so Exodus 34. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first one, and I will write, them, write on them words that were on the first tablet which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up to Mount Sinai. Present yourselves to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen uh, or to be seen anywhere on the mountain, not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning. And as the Lord had commanded him, he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. And then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to 
thousands in forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Then the Lord said to Moses, write down these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread or drinking water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Here, so what's happening? So here Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to, incur, uh, to encounter the presence of God. Uh, the Lord comes down in a cloud and stood there with him and spoke to Moses. And so what does Moses do in this encounter? Well, he doesn't eat for 40 days. So there's an example of another powerful spiritual experience, a life-defining moment in the life of Moses, followed by yet another 40-day fast. All right, one more example before we get to the point. Um, next slide. So 1 Kings 18, 19, uh, at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things that you have commanded. Answer me, uh, Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord God, uh, you are God and that you are, turn, uh, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Meanwhile, the sky grew back uh, with clouds. The wind rose. A heavy rain started to fall, and Ahab roved off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came to Elijah uh, and tucked Tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Uh, yeah. Now Ahab told Jez Jezebel everything Elijah had done, and now he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servants there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom brush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the brush uh, bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals in a jar of water. He ate and drank and then laid there for uh, laid down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, strengthened by the food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. So in 1 Kings 18, uh, just in case we were unclear about what was happening, Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal, uh, and God appears by fire and consumes the sacrifice, demonstrating his power. And what was Elijah's response? Well, he retreats into the desert and fasts for 40 days. And another, yet another powerful spiritual experience, a life-defining moment in the life of Elijah, followed by a 40-day fast. So, next slide. So when an idea uh, or a pattern is repeated over and over again, um, we are meant to pay attention to what's going on. 
Um, now, if all we had in the Bible were these three references about fasting, uh, what could we learn about the purpose or the meaning of fasting? And in all these instances, there was a significant holy moment. Uh, God gets involved in, the, in their lives in a new and dramatic way, redefining their relationship with God, and even going as far as changing the course of their lives. Um, and the response of Moses, Elijah, and Jesus was to fast. Choosing not to eat was their response to a sacred moment. So how do we make sense of their fasting? Well, eating is one of the few activities we do every single day of our lives. Um, I mean, from the moment we come out of our mom, we are hungry. It's just what happens. Uh, and it's an important part of our daily life. And in many cultures and settings, uh, eating has taken on greater meaning than just taking in calories. So eating is a way of expressing oneself. It's our way of connecting with others, and it communicates culture. Uh, food is deeply ingrained in our cultural identity and serves as an expression of our heritage, our history, and our values. Uh, what's also interesting is that the same significance of meaning-making uh, we find in eating also applies to not eating. So abstaining from certain foods for moral or religious or cultural reasons is equally a way of expressing ourselves and representing our heritage. So whether we eat or we don't eat, it's the consistency of our choices, our habits, uh, and the meanings that we ascribe to them that make us the people that we are. And so we see in these passages that the Bible has something to say about our not eating. Um, so when we don't eat, uh, we become painfully aware of the fact that we haven't eaten. And after a while of not eating, it's natural to feel weak, to feel frail. Uh, when we don't eat, we are, you know, we go into existential crisis mode and we're reminded that we as humans entirely depend on things outside of us to keep us alive. And so in the wilderness, Jesus was tempted by the devil. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, which was a shorthand for Deuteronomy 8.3, which reads, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So we live on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Um, and fasting is our way of declaring our frailty as a human to both ourselves and before God. And it's a, it's a confession that I don't ultimately have control over the things in my life or what my life is about, that I, as a human, am quite frail and I'm fragile. And fasting is a way of embodying the phrase, we are weak, but he is strong. And so there's a significant holy moment. God shows up powerfully and gets involved in the lives of Moses, of Elijah, and Jesus in a dramatic way. And they respond to this holy encounter by choosing to fast, to declare through their bodies both the sovereignty of God and the frailty of man. And so to the modern thinker, it might seem strange to not eat as a response to something that's happening to us spiritually. Um, and what that reflects is a mental separation of spiritual things from physical things. So we might believe that our spiritual lives are about thinking, uh, but what we do with our body is unrelated. But this dichotomy of spiritual, spiritual and physical, or mind and body, was a foreign concept to the biblical understanding of human beings. Um, so in the biblical imagination, our bodies are spiritual, 
aligning spiritual experiences with bodily experiences not only made sense, um, they were considered natural. So in the biblical tradition, when God shows up powerfully or redirects our lives, we don't eat. Um, so my question to you is, is God revealing something to you or leading you somewhere? Maybe it's a call to fast. But next slide. All right. So we're uh, moving from column one to column two, which is now the repentant fast. So 1 Samuel 7, 2 to 6. Uh, then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, and <laughs> commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. And then Samuel said, Assemble all at mitzvah, and they will intercede with the Lord, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at mitzvah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On the day they fasted, uh, and they were, and there they confessed, "We have sinned against the Lord." Now Samuel was serving as a leader of Israel in mitzvah. Okay, so what's so what's happening? Uh, the Israelites put away their idol gods and served Yahweh only. That happens in verse 4. But Samuel still calls the Israelites to mitzvah to confess and fast. Verse 6. The repentance of the Israelites didn't end uh, with just turning back to the Lord. Repentance involved confession and fasting. So uh, just keep that in mind as I read the next verse. Uh, Joel 2. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. So Joel writes, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. So in both passages, uh, we find in 1 Samuel and in Joel, um, that the act of repenting is accompanied by fasting. And in Joel 2, there's an explicit command to fast as part of our repentance. So when we wake up to the weight of our sin and we become aware of how messed up we are, when we realize that we're not God in this aspect of our lives, and we let God define those terms, the Bible tells us that the appropriate response to those holy moments is to fast. Why? Well. When I become aware of things that I've done, uh, of things that I've done to hurt myself and, I, and others, I acknowledge this grief not only in my heart and mind, but I also acknowledge that grief in my body. And so fasting becomes an appropriate embodiment of grief. Through fasting, I'm intentionally doing something that brings my body grief to surrender and align my body to a realization that's happening in my heart. Um, so my question to you now is, if God is revealing sin in your life, maybe it's a call to fast and repent. Next slide. All right, so this is just to put it up there and to say that we're moving on to the third category of fasting, which is the lament fast. And this one is probably the easiest one to understand. Um, so uh, moving on, next slide. So 2 Samuel 1, um, I'm gonna read this really long 
passage. Uh, after the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklah two days. And on the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell on the ground to pay him honor. Uh, where have you come from, David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. Uh, what happened, David asked. Tell me. The men fled from battle, he replied. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan were dead. Um, then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son are, uh, Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, uh, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and said, what can I do? He answered, he asked me, who are you? I'm an uh, Amalekite. I answered, then he said to me, stand here by me and kill me. I am on the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men who uh, with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for all the army of the Lord and the nations of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. So what's happening? At the end of 1 Samuel, uh, King Saul and his three sons were killed in battle by the Philistines uh, and they died at the slopes of Mount, Mount Gilboa. And in 2 Samuel 1, the news of Saul's death reached David and David and all the men with him entered into a period of mourning and fasting. And in the Bible, experiences of tragic events, calamities were accompanied by fasting. And that's, that is when we encounter horrific tragedies and death, the appropriate response is to stop eating. And similar to the other two categories of fasting, we stop eating to embody the grief that we feel in our spirit. And so instead of behaving and acting like everything is normal, we put our lives and our diet on pause, and we give ourselves time to process grief mentally, emotionally, and acknowledge that grief in our bodies through our fasting. And so, uh, again, the third question to you is, is there a circumstance in your life where you need to process your grief? And if so, maybe you should fast. All right, so next slide. So back to the table. Um, so these are the three categories of fasting. and so. Uh, we haven't gone through all 30 references, thank God, but <laughs> we have, we've gone through enough examples to give us an idea of when uh, and under what circumstances fasting appears in the Bible. Uh, and in all these examples, uh, it's an event, a holy moment, it's an awareness of sin, it's a tragedy that leads the people to respond with fasting. And it wasn't fasting for the purpose of gaining anything. Jesus, Moses, Elijah didn't fast to gain something or produce some result. Um, God acted in their lives, and somehow the experience of fasting was the appropriate response to God's movement. So for us to fully process that encounter with God, fasting was used. So consider this. Maybe the point of fasting is not for us to obtain a result. It's not to gain God's favor. Maybe the point of fasting is simply for us to submit to God's call with our full selves, including that of our bodies. Um, so one last idea before we wrap up. So Luke 5. Cool. So after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi 
sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and, uh, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi had a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belonged uh, to their sect, complained to his disciples, "Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners?" Jesus answered them, "Is it not? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick." I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so did the disciples of the Pharisees. But your disciples go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and in those days they will fast. So what's happening? People are turning to Jesus. Um, they're repenting. They're finding themselves transformed. And there's a wave of feasts that are happening everywhere Jesus goes. And the Pharisees and the teachers uh, approach Jesus saying, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but your disciples go on eating or feasting. And based on what we've learned about fasting, repentance is accompanied by fasting. Um, so what these Pharisees and what these teachers are saying, it wasn't wrong. So fasting and prayer is the response to repentance. But instead of seeing sinners and tax collectors repenting, praying, and fasting, Jesus celebrates with sinners and responds to the Pharisees in a very odd way. Verse 34, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast when he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and in those days they will fast. So Jesus, in response, redefines the moment from a moment of deep awareness of their sin to a moment of grace. He says, right now there's a wedding. There's a new family that's being created, and the bridegroom is here. Fasting is not the appropriate response right now, but there will come a time when fasting is appropriate. It will be appropriate when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And of course, we know um, that his statement that Jesus is pointing to the cross, and he sees it coming, and it's going to be the most holy life-defining moment. But right now, in this moment, it's a time to celebrate. So Jesus assumes in his reply that his disciples will regularly fast like everyone else, but Jesus also intended that his disciples regularly feast. Uh, and we see this later in the way that Jesus connects the significance of his death on the cross with the Passover feast. Um, we partake in the body and the blood of Jesus through a symbolic feast, and we embody the sovereignty of God in our fasts. So today, if God is leading you somewhere, Maybe it's a call to fast. If God has revealed sin in your life, maybe it's a call to fast and repent. If there's a situation where you need to process grief, maybe you should fast uh, and let yourself embody that grief. Or maybe God is doing some awesome things in your life. Then maybe we should treat our friends to dinner and tell them a story of what God's doing. But whether we feast or whether we fast, I encourage you to bring your whole selves before God. All right, and if Pastor Sam could come up. Let's all stand together and pray. So dur during Lent for the last few years, we talked about Fasting defaults. 
in the revelatory fast, the default is futility. And no matter how much we try to summon the presence of God, no matter how much we try to get God to move, we said that in Epiphany, His presence is His to give. And that's why those days when they fasted 40 days, there was a powerful revelation. All we can do is come before God, and even the disciplines are a means to an end. It allows God to move. So here it is. We can't control how God moves or when he moves. So fasting teaches us patience and the fact that we can't control how he does it. In, in likened to the Chronicles of Narnia, as the children always wait for the move of Aslan in Narnia, so we wait for God. And that's why we fast. We're fasting our default of control. That's the revelatory fast, right? When we repent, the default of turning to other things than God, the inequities, the iniquities, the sins of our lives that control us, but that's a default too. We turn to everything else for relief and purpose and transcendence besides the presence of God. So we're trying to reset those defaults by fasting. And the lament fast, lastly. We realize the world is full of ambiguity. Why is there suffering? Why is there disease? Why is there sickness that happens to my family? Why is there this brokenness in my life? I don't understand, God, why you do this. It doesn't make sense to me logically. And it, again, goes to this thread of having no control of our lives and the world. And coming to God with both our hands lifted. And saying, God, I trust you. I lay down my understanding. I lean into you, the heart that's good. I believe that you're going to work out all the purposes that you have for my life, even in ambiguity, even in inequity, and even in my futility. So again, our theme for Lent is all my life take over. So I want to invite you to lift your hands with me today. Wherever those three areas are, whether you're, you need revelation you need repentance or you're lamenting. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to come and we're going to give all life, our whole life, to the presence of God. Let's make this our prayer. Come live in me.
Father, before we move to Good Friday and the resurrection in the next few weeks, we surrender our futility when we're telling people about Jesus and the Gospels, our families and friends, that nothing seems to happen. And we fast. Our need for results and outcomes and sometimes focus on our language, our knowledge, our faults. But you told us, Scripture, that we are not responsible to build the kingdom. Only God can build the kingdom. Our responsibility is to simply announce the good news. So God, in our futility, we surrender the defaults of trusting in our own power, our own frustrations, and say, we know your presence is only yours to give. We pray for epiphany, and we trust you with your time. We trust you in your wisdom, and we pray that you would move, that Aslan would move and lead others into Narnia and awaken their hearts to who Jesus is. Father, we also come to you with our sins, the iniquities. We come to you with the areas of addiction, the areas that seek relief, the areas that turn to other idols besides the Most High. For a generation that simply gets high on purpose, for purpose, we pray that you would obliterate this idol and you would help us turn toward you because in the end, this default is about a lack of trust that God has a purpose and a future for me and I must find relief now. That's the sin. And so, Lord, we come to you with our sins and surrender them to you and say again, we trust you. And Father, we close today with our laments, the ambiguities of life, the tensions, things that we don't understand. And in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of the shadows, in the midst of the grace, 
we seek to understand wisdom. And in the darkness, we lay our hands to you and surrender our need to control and understand even though our wisdom and our knowledge is so small and frail and weak compared to your knowledge. Lord, we pray this Lent we would never forget that fasting is a privilege so that a means to an end that the presence of God visits us and changes us. Lord, we pray as a community all our lives take over. Even the hidden areas of our lives, even the areas we struggle with the most, God, all life, my whole life, take over. Will you bow your heads for the benediction today? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. All God's people pray. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.